This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, oh, oh wow! Don't they know it's the end of the world? Do you want that more dramatic or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse. Three Triple R's weekly exploration and interrogation of the tinkerers and thinkerers of the doers and the movers and the shakers who are creating new systems in the cracks of the old ones. Uh, tonight on Greening the Apocalypse, oh God, <clears throat> we'll be talking about piss, liquid gold. It's a great untapped resource with a history as long as our very own. Where does it all go? What's in it? What the history books tell us and what may we use it for around the home and to save our sorry collective asses from uh, potential catastrophe? As always, co-conspirator, the wizard of Wee Wee, the lion of the lake, Adam Grubb. <laughs> well, thanks, mate. You, you sound, it's, you've got a really impressive amount of uh, bladder capacity there, but the flow's a bit slow. Yeah. I was a little worried about your prostate. Well, I was trying to just hold my guts in while I did the intro. I didn't want to just racehorse it, but... um. Yeah, that was uh, quite a nifty little sound in the background, though. Although I must admit, I do really need to use the loo now. But <laughs> we might revisit that sound effect later. In the rotating chair, returning for her second week running and possessing a specialised kidney for extra fertility and vibrant piss is the amazing Sarah <laughs> Coles. Hello. Let's talk kidney. So you reckon it's a bit of magical piss? Well, oh, I've got a... Uh an autoimmune disease that affects my kidney. Mm. But I do think that when I pee on a garden, it thrives. Yes. That hasn't been peer-reviewed. <laughs> well, that, well, it's all right. Lots of stuff in the media isn't peer-reviewed. Yeah. Yeah, Channel 9. Um, and as always, the Chief Assembly Engineer on the panel, the magnificent Jed McCartney. Evening all. How are you going? I'm, I'm going well, although, like you, I think I'm crossing my legs for the next hour. Yeah, yeah. I've got a little Amazing. twist tie. Yeah. Um, you got a bit of champion bike news this week. Yeah, today we, uh, we got the news that Michael Rogers, uh, one of Australia's greater cyclists, was retiring because he has a heart condition, mm. uh, he found out. So um, Mickey Rogers has been a pro for about 16 years. He, um, he was the first person in history to win three world time trial championships in a row. He's won stages of the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia, I think, both in 2014. Um, he was the Australian time trial champ in 2009, and he's been to four Olympic Games. So, um, as a competitor, as a competitor, not a. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I know some people have been to Olympic Games to watch. Yeah, and yeah. for the last uh, couple of years, he's been the team captain for uh, Tinkoff Saxo, and uh, you can see the influence he has. So he'll be missed in the the pro peloton, I'm sure. And um, yeah. Good innings. What a great career. Yep, great innings, and I'm sure he's still got a big future in cycling, so well oh, done. Well played. But uh, what are we looking at this week, Adam? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I was looking at, well, it was covered by a lot of 
uh, news outlets the fact that in Hazelwood Pondage, now Hazelwood, as we know, is the most polluting power station in the Southern Hemisphere. In the OECD. In the OECD, there you go. And uh, one of the byproducts of that is it's probably not very efficient with its water use. And the Hazelwood Pondage, which is a huge cooling system next to it, is like a hot lake. I used to go there as, a, as I was a kid sometimes yeah. when I was a kid because I was grew up in that area. It never gets below 22 degrees, so I'm, in the cold months there's just this steam rising yeah, yeah. off it. It's beautiful. Did you swim in it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Superpowers. Uh, it's a popular recreational um lake it was fantastic yeah. and so did you have to sneak in or is it game on you can no just... it's game on yeah sweet yeah people uh water ski there and um fish there and it's the latter which got it into the news because of its tropical like conditions uh various parties got together um including fisheries victoria in a partner project called the Barramundi Working Group, and they've released 1,600 Barramundi into Hazelwood Pondage, trying to turn it into, like, the only part of the southern country's uh, Barramundi fishing destina- destination. Now, I, I have mixed responses to this because of the whole context to it, but it's pretty exciting. When I saw it's it, I thought of the episode of The Simpsons where there's Blinky, that fish with all the different eyes yeah, next well, to the nuclear reactor. They... I think they are going to test them to see how toxic they yeah, are. Yeah, because on the news, yeah. it had the politician making the speech, this big brouhaha about the release of these barramundi, the potential for more well, interviews with citizens, and at the very end, it's like, may not be edible. The reason why this resonated with me so much, I think, was because I had this idea when I was eight years old only slight variation, eight-year-old boy style. I wasn't thinking barramundi. Was Dragon? Piranhas. Piranhas. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing you say that because as soon as I saw this thing, and my brain instantly went to, was it 1978, the original Piranha movie? <laughs> that really dodgy one where the guy genetically engineered piranhas for the military <laughs> and then they escaped because they always escape in the movies. I think Piranhas too was when they got wings as well. Yep, flying yep. killers. Yeah. Also classically bad. <laughs> yes. It's like they pinned a heap of Christmas angels to the back of rainbow trouts to make that one. It was like, it was that shit. <laughs> but let's not review films. I, I think um, my concern is that all the particulates that are coming out of the mine, isn't there a very high cancer rate in that area? Well, obviously with the open-cut mine on fire last year and mm. um, already, yeah, pretty... Um, Reason, well, high mortality rates for Western country in that area yeah. and um, all sorts of respiratory diseases. They just went through the roof. Uh, maybe that has an effect on the, on the quality of the water as well. I'm not sure. Mm. Wow. <laughs> I'll quickly touch on mine before we go to yours, Colsey, because mine's a really quick little one because we are talking about urine today, the liquid gold. And... Um, Anyone at ASIO who's following my Google search history at the moment will be um, quite convinced that I'm kinky, but um, or maybe just right into wee. But um, so you know that one of the things we're going to touch on this a bit. But I was reading this little blog by a lady who went to a convergence in 2000 in Cincinnati, and it was the Giant Hand Weavers Guild of America conference, and she sat in on a seminar. Um, called pee piddle and whiz and it was about using urine in your spinning and dyeing processes 
um, which is pretty awesome, at pH neutral and sterile, which is more than you can say for your water supply, she mentions here. But in ancient times, it was used to wash wool. Okay, and they did an experiment. She put some greasy wool in a Ziploc baggie and poured urine over it, and she sealed the bag and waited for a few days for the wool to completely absorb the urine. When she opened the bag and let it air out and dry out, uh, she touched the wool. It was soft and very easy to spin. And um, she washed her finished yarn, and there was no grease left on that. But it also says here, there's this wonderful little... Ah, oh, <laughs> oh, no. Carton. Uh-huh. Um, and, it, yeah, it says here on the... Uh, on the Isle of Shetland, Shetland Isles, uh, there was a bit of folklore that said that each night heading home from the pub, the gentleman of the island would go past the dyer's, um, uh, the dyer's house and donate urine to his vat so that he could fix colours on his wool and uh, clean it up. So she, she says, yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. I do know that the old indigo recipes used urine. Again, we haven't peer-reviewed that particular little thing, but let's assume that in old times, men leaving pubs pissed in a vat so that people could dye their clothes. Let's just presume that that's the case and move on. <laughs> I think it's very likely tr- true. I've I got some more facts to complement that, but we'll save them until later. It's you and your facts. We should. <laughs> what have you got, Colsey? I've got an article that might make Adam fly into a rage. <laughs> no, I've got an article from Civil Eats, the website. Uh, can permaculture make a dent in America's farm landscape? Um, it's asking if permaculture can scale up. Uh, so it says, is it a viable approach for farmers? Can it scale up in the context of the larger US food system? And then they're saying not all farmers or farmer advocates are fully convinced that permaculture is useful as currently taught and practiced. Permaculture advocates have been accused of being big on theory but unrealistic in practice, especially for farmers who rely on a consistent marketable product and income. I would like to know your thoughts on this. Uh, I can't ag- disagree with anything that you've just said, actually. Uh, but I did find this article a little bit frustrating, especially since the author identified as being a permaculture teacher. And he talked about things like um, <clears throat> that how can farmers do things like plant in curvy lines and things instead mm. of straight lines. It's like, wow, come on. If that if that's your definition of permaculture. <laughs> it I doesn't... did notice that he also skipped over the existence of Holmgren in the article. Oh, yeah, small point there. I noticed that too. <laughs> but uh, f- for, for me, permaculture is not... Uh, and, and to be honest, a lot of the criticisms aimed at permaculture in this article I actually do think are accurate. Uh, but if that was all permaculture was, I wouldn't uh, touch it with a very long um, stick but what I think permaculture is to me is like a system of design where you take time to figure out where people are coming from, what their particular economic needs are and all their other needs so you're at, you know curvy lines or spirals or any sort of aesthetic can kind of these cliches associated with permaculture mm. just should not even be on the table from the beginning it's like well what what does this person need what is the landscape telling us and you come to it with a fair bit of ecological literacy and ability to read landscapes and you try and find a meeting point between the people and their strengths and limitations and needs and what the landscape can do for that so a swale then no, no. In, so yeah, for those that don't know, a swale is one of those 
classic examples of something over-prescribed by permaculturists is this sort of saviour strategy, but doesn't actually necessarily work in a lot of contexts, particularly Can in farming commercial ones. The tire pond for frog habitat in the 1990s, apparently that was the number one thing that everyone that went near permaculture put a little pond in their backyard for frog habitat using a tyre and a plastic liner and just all these gardens ended up with these rotted out shitty ponds that didn't work as Ad, I think what Adam just said was perfect it's you arrive at you're looking at me quite strangely Colin. I'm engaging oh, with engaging. what you're saying okay <laughs> as Adam said you use the tools uh, the design tools to arrive at the appropriate solution for each individual or their family or their town or, or what depending on the scale that you're designing to yeah so it kind of can it can be done but it's going to take a huge amount of time, input. Can I ask you one more thing? Yep. So one of the people quoted in the article is someone called Evan Big. He's the director of the Farmers Guild. And he is saying the challenge is the constraints on professional farmers that exist beyond production techniques. So he's saying permaculture doesn't pay enough attention to things like land access food safety regulations labor costs global competition and fickle markets Um, what do you say about that uh well land access we we touched on land access stuff last week with jody roebuck yeah that was good so there's i think well again that's he may have seen this author may have seen five or ten or twenty or fifty um, instances in his local area where that's been the case. Look, there's a whole bunch of stuff. I think one aspect of maybe what permaculture is also doing is looking to a time beyond current um, economic constraints and all those sorts of things to what may come in the um, in the void left um, in a changing world. There's certainly people making a living uh, who associate themselves as permaculturists. The food forest in South Australia, which is a commercial uh, nut orchard. Uh, Joel Salison is like the most famous farmer in, Austra- in in the world, more or less, and, and he's someone that to some degree associates with permaculture and certainly a lot of permaculturists uh, look towards him. But I, I, I think, yeah, it's like any movement. There's pros and cons there and fads and uh, wishful thinking uh, but there is a movement with within it of people that are making it, you know, the rubber really hit the road and and uh, push forward its strengths while also questioning the weaknesses of stuff that's happening there. It's a pretty good framework for uh, getting people interested in, in broader ecological things and making movements beyond just change the light bulb sustainability and, and uh, really get to understand... Uh, your place in the world and with some practical outcomes. So there's a lot going for it. But yeah, like anything, it can it can be so good, change people's lives. They get uh, an oversimplified vision of it and get a bit messianic, and it gets a bit embarrassing. Mm. Yeah. As with all things, I'm Joel Salatin, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio, greening the apocalypse on Radio 102.7, free triple R. You are on Green the Apocalypse on Triple R. It's just the crew in the studio tonight. We don't have a guest because we just looked around and, like... Just thought you guys look like experienced urinators. We all we. Yep. And uh, I never went during the track. 
Sorry. No, I notice you're swigging on your water bottle. I th- hopefully you'll uh, make it through this segment, Bushy. But, yeah, so we want to we discuss what is sitting in front of us uh, every time we use the loo is one of the biggest untapped resources available to the human race. It is our own excreta. And we have, in previous episode or two, we've had Andy Tannehill on, mm. and we talked about uh, humanure, which is a little bit more confronting. That's your number twos. <laughs> a little bit harder to deal with. And sure, not everybody... I can't believe they gave us a dinner time slot sometimes. No, no, it's just... But anyway. should never have happened. <laughs> never have. Um, but understandable if you're going like, oh, that is disgusting. I don't want to touch it. I mean, sooner or later as a race, we're going to have to deal with it or we will, we will perish. That's what mm. it comes down to. Let's not put too fine a point on it. But, let's, but I un- can understand where people are going, yeah, that's gross. On the other hand, number ones, uh, pee is actually incredibly easy and not that confronting. Some people... <laughs> No, I'm not even going to go there. I was going to say this. Well, subcultures are people that really like it too much. Um, (laughs) Anyway. So you Uh, went there enough to not quite go there. Yeah. Uh, It's really actually... It turns out that uh, urine is where... it's It's where most of the nutrients leaving the human body end up. And it is a fantastic garden fertilizer. But before we get to that... Do any of you guys have any? We thought we'd just mine some quirky historical facts. What do you got for us, Bushy? Well, it's such a. This is a fantastic bit of crowd participation. My friend Lisa Richards, uh, uh, during the the last segment of the show, sent in. I haven't watched this video obviously because it just arrived. It's a YouTube video. You know Tony Robinson Baldrick from Black Audio did the show, like all these different shows about history. And so uh, there's a thing here called the worst jobs in the Middle Ages, and one of the worst jobs was the fuller. The fuller was the dyer, the person who would work with wool and dye it and weave it and everything like that. And there's a picture here, like a still shot of him um, heaving whilst treading urine in. Um, so apparently quite a descriptive piece. But so, um, yeah, that would have been an incredible job, like using urine to fix wool. Jed? I, I saw that episode. Yeah, he talked to me about yeah, it. Yeah, he um, ended up in this big tub of warm wee with cloth and yeah, right. he was stomping it in yeah and, it sounds and he, like a monty python skit yeah it was but and he didn't look well at the end <laughs> so i'm not a, i actually couldn't give any kind of explanation as to why it it fixes color to wool it just i mean onion skins are used to dye wool various colors so um there's all different colors that require a fixative it might be the presence of the salts perhaps that's part of it which is a thing well, we probably need to touch had, on later. Um, in pre-industrial times, a great deal of uses. I found out that the uh, there is actually an old English word for a urine called lant. They called it lant, and so it was commonly used, uh, collected, possibly in these collection systems you mentioned yeah. uh, for folks on the way home from the vat from the pub. And used for its chemical content uh, for processes such as cleaning floors, making gunpowder, uh, laundry. Imagine that. Uh, but beyond that, believe it or not, to freshen the breath or to flavour said ale. Uh, it was called lanted ale or double lanted ale. So that's really nutrient cycling right there. So to, f- to freshen the breath. Uh-huh. Or to glaze hard pastries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
You know what? Actually, if to quickly contribute to that, I was bullied. I was bullied a bit by a handful, small handful of guys when I was at school. So That's here's a confession. Hard to believe these days. Hard to believe these days. So here I am confessing something pretty dark on air. So there was this one guy who was probably the worst perpetrator, the kind of dude that punched in the balls on your birthday and just relentlessly horrible to me. And so when we hit about age 15, you're smirking, you know what's coming next, don't you, Colsey? About age 15 or 16, where we got to that age where you sneak um, into someone's party with booze, this dude was getting fairly trolleyed. Mm. Um, and he was getting fairly trolleyed on, like, Jack Daniels or something like that. So something that smells quite strong. So I went and did a pee in a cup and topped it up with Jack Daniels and Coke and went and gave it to him and said, here you go, man, I can't finish my drink, you have it. And he sculled it because everyone dared him to scull it. And it, that was when I went Was around. there a grand reveal? Well, I went around the corner and I said to a guy who I thought was a good friend, I said, listen, don't tell anyone, but I just... And within minutes, I was running around this paddock out in Macclesfield trying to get away from this guy who had a belly full of my piss. <laughs> So it's a, it can also be... I mean, I've moved on. Don't give me... I've moved on. It's 22 years ago. <laughs> but there was... Surely, historically, it was a great pranking tool as well. But, uh, Do you run anecdote, an- anecdotes, Colsey, or should we move on uh, to some... I've got one. Because I've got glomerular nephritis, every two years I have to do a 24-hour urine sample. And so it's a, it looks like a, I think it's a four-litre milk jug and you have to keep it in the fridge. So when you live in share housing, <gasps> that's awkward. And then, not last time, but the time before, it leaked on the tram on the way to the hospital. In your bag. Yeah, oh. and down the aisle. Oh. That's my anecdote. That's shameful. I've we- got a fact too. Yeah. Yep. Um, European bakers used urine to help their bread rise before they discovered yeast. <laughs> and when they discovered yeast, there was such a celebration. That <laughs> would have been a good day. That is not peer-reviewed either. <laughs> I just found that just then on the internet. <laughs> Nothing from the medieval era is peer-reviewed. <laughs> All right, well, our ancestors were apparently a little bit less squeamish about the urine than we have become today. Indeed, we tend to flush it into perfectly good drinking water and send it out to the bay. <laughs> it turns out that each person, we piss about 500 litres a year that's enough to fill three standard bathtubs and that actually only accounts for about one percent of all the sewerage Mm. there's about a billion liters of sewerage that leaves melbourne every year although it's only that's tiny percent of the sewerage it's where most up to 90 percent of the nitrogen in sewerage is coming from urine now nitrogen is one of the limiting factors in the number of humans on the planet. Like, without nitrogen, you don't have protein. And the way we get it currently is with the incredibly energy-intensive Haber-Bosch process where you put it into... You get atmospheric nitrogen, you put it under high pressure, you put natural gas in there with it and uh, heat it up and you get these chemical fertilisers which are double as explosives. And about... 40% of all the nitrogen you've ever eaten, or another way of looking at it would be 40% of all the people on the planet only exist because of this process. Um, But an incredibly energy-intensive and damaging one it is. And phosphorus is another one that's leaving in our drinking water. And that is equally necessary for life. You just can't have it without it. Mm. And Australia is a notoriously phosphorus-deficient continent. Uh, we produce uh, half a kilogram of that 
out of our urine every year each. doesn't seem like much, but that's enough to grow a, almost a complete human diet. And the way we get that is like we dig up beautiful tropical island paradises like Nauru, where birds used to poo a lot and uh, turn them into open-cut mines. Yeah, so nice. if, we could ca- if we could take this... Um, and, and all those nutrients, once they're in the wastewater, they become a problem uh, because they create um, flushes of algae and bacteria and can create... Uh, which, which then suck all the oxygen out of water and become a waste management issue. So we turn this incredible resource uh, into something quite damaging. So we're, we're going to have a chat. Uh, we'll, we, we'll leave it to when we... We're going to do some phone-ins later. Yeah, we will. After the track, and we'll talk about how to use it in the garden. But there are places and people already using it commercially or on the municipal scale. Have you got something to report there, Bush? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an old article from Modern Farmer. Uh, what's the date of that? January 13th, 2014, so two and a bit years ago, but the article poses a question, can human urine replace chemical fertilisers? And I, I was interested in this one, especially because they are it's a scaling up project. Often when people scale up, they fuck up. Pardon my language. But, you know, you get something that works quite well on a small local level and you go, hey, yeah, well, everyone can do it, and then it like, turns out you have a, a great issue with it. But uh, this is from the Rich Earth Institute in Brattleboro, Vermont, and they are likely the only organisation that measures its success in gallons of urine. And they basically got a bunch of people to volunteer their wee. They set them up with funnels and bottles and all sorts of stuff, and they were collecting... Now, let me see the numbers. I think it was up around 6,000... 6,000 gallons a year. Um, anyone wants to work out what that is in the new money? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Um, what's that, mate? 2,800. 2,800, okay. 2,800 litres, so nearly three tonnes of wee. And they were doing some very controlled experiments where they were applying it to the soil. Now, this was what really interested me because they... They didn't just go out there with the big John Deere tractor. They had a um, horse-drawn cart with a special customised urine applicator. And the results were pretty remarkable. They did notice um, improved harvest off those soils. So, um, And that, that's an interesting thing because one of the things I often think about now with the whole wee conundrum and, and urine is that once upon a time when we didn't have fences and we didn't have cities and we didn't have all of our piss focusing like onto solid ground and then into stormwater and then out to the oceans all that sort of stuff every creature on the planet just sort of walked about the place and peed and pooed and the cycle was able to occur uninterrupted but now we take it all and we focus it super heavily into one spot and then once it's been dealt with and like cleaned up a bit it gets taken out to sea and dumped again in another spot. So it's a real thing. It's really out of balance, the whole wee-wee cycle. But um, we can start to bring it back into balance in our own little way in the backyard. And after the next track, which is uh, Adam's track, we will get you guys um, active with the conversation and we'll talk about ways that you can use it in your garden to improve your soil. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. 
And Triple R is where you are. Greening the Apocalypse is the show. And we are talking Wheeze, number ones. Um, we've been discussing just before that track that... Um, because of the sheer number of us and because a lot of it gets flushed down toilets mixed with drinking water and concentrated in high doses, that we're actually turning what was once a hero of the soil into a bit of a villain. We're taking a lot of our nutrients and a lot of the minerals, flushing them away, and um, it's become quite problematic. So what we always like to do here on Greening the Apocalypse is to bring it back home with a bit of a solution where we can and take matters into our own hands, so to speak. So, uh, Adam, you and I... Uh, garden quite a bit with our our piss don't we i am uh yeah an avid garden urinator mm. and there's various strategies you can employ uh anything yeah obviously some some plants uh, can famously you mm. just go to the lemon tree yep the banana palm's another great one Is they it? can handle so much uh, rich nitrogen that you can basically pee straight on them. Right, uh, but for most things in the garden, you all you have to do to make everything want that uh, plant from a plant the most delicious fertilizer it could possibly imagine um, is to water it down. Indeed, because it's just a little bit too hot, too too rich. That's the biggest problem with urine. Um, but everything will will take it well that's quite appropriate because actually we've got a, a, a caller online well we've got uh mick there and uh mick you had a question about dilution of urine didn't you yeah so i've read that you should dilute it one to twenty mm. and my quick apart from grasses i hear they can take a lot more and what obviously you just mentioned so the question is is that because of the ph thing because it's too acidic or is that because it's too concentrated in uh whatever i i diluted it one to ten I collect, um, I collect it uh, with those like secondhand, you know, like milk and juice bottles. Quite confusing if it's an apple juice bottle, but just those two litre plastic tubs and decant out um, one litre into a 10 litre watering can and top it up with water. I just said decant as though it's some fine Grange Hermitage piss, but it's as whiffy as the rest. But um, look, it's interesting because I've, I've been reading up a lot on this for quite some time, but I, I was reading my uh, one of my favourite writers, Jackie French, and uh, she, uh, I think it was her that was saying diluted at 1 to 20. Other people have said uh, it's pH neutral, and, but I've had experiences where um, like the signs of um, having too much acidity have showed up when I introduced some to a worm farm mixed with sawdust. Uh, it was a bit too strong, and the worms all moved off to the side of the worm farm. Adam... Do you know a bit more about the pH of the urine? P- the pH, it's, it's, it's a negligible issue according to the authorities uh, in terms of it adjusting the pH of your soil. When it comes out, it's very mildly acidic, kind of really perfect for plants. If you store it and you do that with a closed lid uh, for a few months, then it can go quite alkaline, which kills any potential pathogens. Um, but again, it doesn't really adjust the pH of your soil that much in the mm. quantities that you apply it. The main reason for watering it down is because you, there is such a thing of too much of a good thing. All those uh, fertilizers, all, all those minerals, um, the, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, and the potassium uh, can can overwhelm plants. So just water it down. I think twenty to one is excessive. Uh, three to one, I think most plants will handle it, no drama. Uh, it might depend if you've had a, um, you know, if you've been drinking 23 cups of tea and it comes out pre-diluted <laughs> or if yeah. you, you're a little bit, um, you've been jogging and 
or whatever, and it, or you've been had a big night, and it comes out um, the colour of uh, coffee or something, um, then you might want to dilute it a little bit more. What I'll be able to um, <clears throat> go over your parts of storage. So, if I store it for a long time, you said it becomes alkaline. What's an ideal time length of time to store it in a uh, anaerobic condition? Couple of months. Yeah, I, I usually yeah. go. I usually go about six to eight weeks. Um, just with a date, just a simple date with a texture on the on the plastic bottle. Um, Why do you store it bushy? Because I, I've never done that. I've just, you know... Just because... It's a reminder that, oh, it's right now, I feel like going. <laughs> the garden's just there. Maybe there's some things that require a bit of water, a bit yeah. of fertiliser. Fill, fill a bucket up with some water. Do a, I've got a lot do of my ni- business in there. There's a lot of nitrogen coming. Like and uh, keep, me, keep me in constant contact with the garden. Yeah, and I use it for a multiple like a multiple amount of things but I also have like because I've got chooks I've got a lot of nitrogen coming out of there because I collect um, veggie scraps and waste and stuff for the compost from restaurants and friends I've got nitrogen I've got a lot of inputs of nitrogen Can you stockpiling nitrogen? Maybe. Sounds like uh, you might be. Next to my pitchfork collection. <laughs> no, but um, but also sometimes you just kind of, you know, sometimes you want to put it out over the garden, sometimes you want to use it as a compost ingredient, like as your moisture input. Um... Yeah, my neighbour recently asked me if I um, do like a t- similar thing to the Italians with passata and have like a bottling day. <laughs> uh, I don't. But there's other things that you can do with it as well. So if you've got it stored and uh, so we have the wood fire burning in um, in the winter. Now, that's not an official source of biochar. Okay, biochar is a bit different to what we're doing, but I do get a fair bit of charcoal come out of out of the fireplace. Mm. So um, soaking that in urine actually helps to get some nitrogen inside inside that chart. Yeah, you might know. You've, you've convinced me, but I'm just still imagining this scenario. <laughs> no, heaven forbid yeah. things don't work out that well with the home life. There's a custody battle. Yeah. And the judge finds out you've got gallons of, like, stored urine. Mm. I just don't think that's going to work out well for you. Possibly not. But going back to my, my previous <laughs> time as a, um, as a drink pisser, um, when I was at high school, I found out that the best way to deal with authority, be it a judge in a custody battle or a vice principal, is to find out ahead of the meeting what their hobbies are. So, you know, he may judge me harshly for storing piss, but then he also might like to have a chat about fishing. He probably likes okay. metal. Good life like metal. advice. Yeah, yeah, good life, good life advice. advice. Find out what the authority's <laughs> like. Um, yeah, but, I mean, there's, I store it, yeah, I store it for a number of reasons. But, I mean, you can also, we're just looking through a few lists we've got here, you know, combining it with a carbon source. So, Adam, I was very fascinated a while ago when I went to the offices of your business that you guys have dispensed with the flushing um, for wee-wees and you use the sawdust output from your business. Yeah, yeah, well, we've got a little warehouse where we, yeah, cut cut timber so there's, there's sawdust to sweep up and... Yeah, besides supplying it directly to the garden in a liquid form or storing it and diluting it and putting it on the garden, uh, you can combine it with a source of carbon. Are you still online there, Mick, by the way? Is this, fa- is this interesting yeah, to yeah. you? Oh, you know, you're, you're brushing my dinner preparations, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, I hope I, you're having asparagus. Yeah, <laughs> well, actually, Mick, do you want to hang on the line or are you you're good to go? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'll, just, I'll just hang on and then I can... Well, listen to you guys. All right, yeah, yeah no, right, great. Carbon storage. Yeah, yeah it's ex- quiz. Well, thanks for bringing us back on track because we're not that good at it. But you're right. So, the ca- <laughs> ca- combining it with a source of carbon, uh, if 
this is one of the biggest problems for anyone who composts. If you're getting something that's, if your compost is stinky, it's probably because there's not enough carbon in there and sources of carbon. Uh, sawdust is an ideal one. And you can combine that with high nutrient and high nitrogen type uh, materials and you end up getting this beautiful mix of stuff that will compost. And so we've, Kerry, our warehouse manager, calls it, calls it the power mulch. We urinate into buckets full of this high carbon sawdust material and uh, he spreads it on his fruit trees and um, has pomegranates the likes of the, which the world has never seen. Nice. Yep. You can also use it to um, – so here's another reason why I store it is when I'm putting stuff into the worm farm or the compost, say I've collected up a few cardboard boxes and I want to soak them off. I always add moisture to cardboard if I've got to introduce it. So um, diluted wee and water in a bucket, tear up newspaper, tear up cardboard, a um, bit of autumn leaves or whatever, put that into the bucket and then when you're putting that into your compost or worm farm system or on your sandwiches um, – it's all it's all going in in one hit. So, yeah. I mean, it's funny. I sent a photo of about five or six bottles of wee off to my brother a few months ago and said, check this out. And it was about 12 litres of wee. And bottle number one and bottle number five were both very, very dark. And, when, and he, he bothered to ask, you know, what happened to bottle one and five. I went back and I had a look at the diary. And the night before, I'd had a fairly, fairly good hit at the red wine and the beer and a, a hell of a lot of, like, voluptuous type food like a friend had um put a lamb on a spit or something like that and so my my body was charged with all this sort of stuff so when i did the wee wee i was clearly quite dehydrated i think i showed you that photo sarah coles and you said it was nothing short of alarming (laughs) (laughs) it looked like um van gogh once painted a cornfield using six different yellows (laughs) (laughs) and like that Awesome. Hey, um, we probably should wrap up. Mick, he's been a patient putter on the phone. Have you got any questions while you're on the phone there, Mick? No, I'm done. Good as gold. <laughs> being polite. Thanks, but good as gold. Thank you for your manners and your call. <laughs> well, um, we don't have time for any other callers, do we? Well, I don't know if any other callers want to call in, but I, mean, I, I kind of thought we'd be swamped with questions. I mean, the lemon tree is an obvious one. Yep. We said it at the time. I noticed a while ago the leaves on my lemon tree were starting to turn a bit yellow. Mm-hmm. Right? What's well, one of the signs that uh, they give you when they want wee on their roots? Mm-hmm. And since I've been applying some diluted wee wee to the lemon tree down a, a tube, I, I drilled a tube down into the ground and put a bit of agricultural slotted pipe in there mm-hmm. so they get a very direct feed. What is the sign that you've been putting too much on? Mm. Uh, if you can smell it in the garden, mm. you've gone too far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much it um, because that's telling you that uh, you've overwhelmed the bacteria in the soil and they can no longer um, keep it in an aerobic form. Yeah, and then how do you introduce this radical gardening idea to friends and family? Like what if they come to your house, you're making a salad from the garden, mm. you get to talking about how you piss on the garden, they can't eat anymore. You know, <laughs> like some people are very squeamish yeah. about it. How do you deal with that? Uh, Get new friends. Yep. Uh, now, some friends of mine refused to eat corn that we grew at summer. When I, I said, oh, it's especially yellow because of all of my wee. And oh, they wouldn't eat it. really put them off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame. I mean, until the modern era, you know, it, everything. Like, we cycled our nutrients. There was no other way of producing food. Mm. Uh, yep. Um, but gone are the days when it was considered a good thing to put directly in your ale, let alone the days when uh, people v- more highly value your food stuff. But I, 
I personally, I love it. It makes me feel like if I'm spending money on food and I know it's good organic food, uh, I'm getting those nutrients, then they're going on the garden and I'm getting them back again. Yep. And uh, I get a sense of pride. I get a sense of... um, (laughs) I get genuine abundance out of the garden because of using this strategy. There's no money going in. We're not not causing um, pollution problems. And it's just this free fertiliser and uh hey it's got to go somewhere i actually rather take a pee in the garden than in some uh, in some box inside i have noticed every time you come to my house you want to pee in the garden it's like you love doing it so much that you try to do it all the time (laughs) (laughs) awesome hey um we hope we've covered everything there is to talk about piss and uh the ins and outs of wee wee You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R. Triple R is where you are as we commence the wrap up here on Greening the Apocalypse. Thank you, Jed, for hitting the buttons in the correct sequence. Oh, ah. um, thanks for coming up from the coast, Colsey. It's okay. How'd you go? How's you go on the bus this week? Um, yeah, I love the bus. Good opportunity to read a book. Yeah. Do whatever. Awesome. Hey, Lion of the Lake, what's coming up next week? <laughs> um, next week we're going to be talking to Alison Pulio, who is like an adventure explorer, fungi expert. We're going to be talking all things fungi ecology, and she runs Edible Fungi Workshop, so we'll be talking about that, no doubt, as well. Awesome stuff. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.